the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA. 10.50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California, which it is now because it was raining earlier. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone. I'm your host, Rob Starr, along with our great host, Mr. Chris Davey. Good evening, Rob. How are you? I am fine. Tired, busy. Uh, that goes double for me. So, yes. yeah, this, uh, uh, this week. And how about this weather? It's the middle of May, and it's pouring with rain in Southern California. It's great. Shut the fridge. What is happening? Yeah, we got more water than what we can do with. <laughs> That's probably not true, but uh, it's it's nice to see that. Uh, just for our listeners, we were on our way here, and there was a uh, kind of an accident happened over at the March Air Force Base. Yeah, there was very very late afternoon news. Looks like a F fifteen F sixteen a crash near March Air Force Base. Yeah, pilot ejected on the uh, tarmac, and the plane crashed into a building. Yeah, that's pretty much all we know right now. And it's got loaded ordnance. So and they shut yes. the freeways in both directions. And uh, took us a little long to get here to the studio because the traffic, but we made it in time. And uh, anyway, we're ready to go. We're rare, and we got great guests. And our first one up today. Hey, thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. And even though this is uh, an ag show, I think this will be um, a show that will be of interest to Everybody um, in the country, both uh, urbanites and uh, farmers alike, uh, we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Don Klein, and we will be talking about um, United States water and his perspective from uh, our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., as a water leader there. So I'd like to welcome uh, Don to the show. Welcome, Don. Thank you. Well, I, um, I'd like to let people know what your background is because it's um, uh, very impressive, and um, you're a guy that knows a lot about the weather is, is basically what the deal is, and we're going to be talking a lot about water and weather for the next half hour. So for those um, in our listening audience, uh, Don holds a Ph.D., an M.S., and a B.S. degree from the Department of Geography at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And he's responsible for the United States Geologic Survey, otherwise known as USGS, uh, for their research, monitoring, assessment, and prediction of our nation's water resources. So, as you can imagine, that's kind of a tall order. (laughs) So, Don joined USGS in 2016 following a 19-year career with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Weather Service, otherwise known as NOAA where he served as director of the National Water Center and was the chief of the hydrology laboratory and was the director of the National Operation Hydrologic Remote Sensing Center. So lots of experience in uh, research and managing our water resources. So, Don, tell us a little bit about how you ended up working in this water space and a little bit about your background, please. Uh, sure. Well, I guess I'm lucky, first of all. It's... Uh when you go to school, you never quite know what you're going to wind up doing. You just hope for it, but uh, I, I found myself in the right place at the right time. Um, I I got pretty interested in water as a, as a young person. In 1972, my uh, family was caught up in the major flash flooding in Rapid City, South Dakota, and ever since kind of have been interested in that sort of thing. And when I went to University uh, of Colorado, I found that uh, I could actually study that and become a, a water scientist, and that's more or less what I did. 
National Weather Service in Minnesota uh, doing hydrologic remote sensing, basically looking at snowpack and water resources from space. And um, one thing sort of led to another. I wound up in Washington, D.C., uh, running uh, research laboratories for NOAA and eventually the National Water Center, a new facility in Alabama. And then got to come over here to USGS where there's even lots more research in, in water than, than in NOAA and uh, really covers the entire gamut of water resources science here in USGS. So I'm pretty fortunate to have uh, navigated my way through all that and wound up at a place where I can really turn 360 degrees any day of the week and see just about any gamut of water resources in the United States. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty cool that you knew as a kid that um, you wanted to be involved in this. Um, you, you knew what you wanted to be when you grew up when you were little. That, <laughs> that's quite quite fortunate. Uh, although the the flash the flash flood doesn't sound too great, but um, I guess it was a a way to prepare for drought as well. Uh, well, when I heard you speak at the Water Resources Congressional Summit um, in D.C. in March, it's uh, something that you keynoted. Um, you said that the, the USGS's water resources mission area provides society with the information it needs on water quantity and quality across the nation. So tell us a little bit about that charge. How, how, um, how do you do that? Um, well, as you mentioned earlier, it's a tall order. Um, we, we basically, I guess it starts with a couple different approaches to thinking about this. It starts with people. We have about 3,700 people across the country in, in the water mission of USGS. We have a footprint in every state. We have state water science centers, um, and we have research labs and um, our headquarters facility here in Western Virginia. And in, in general, the work we do falls into two categories. One is collecting data and the other is doing science studies and research. Um, okay. We do, uh, <clears throat> we essentially cover almost every facet of, of water science in terms of our monitoring. Uh, we measure and monitor groundwater, surface water stream flow. Uh, we do special measurements when there are storms or floods, for example. Uh, we can go out in the flood. We have scientists that will actually wade out into floodwaters uh, to make special measurements so that the measurements are accurate during the flood. We do a lot of work after floods to go back and measure how high the water was, um, things like that. We do a lot of remote sensing of water characteristics, the velocity of water in streams, for example. Um, and then we get into other aspects of, of things in the water quality realm where we measure all sorts of water quality parameters. Um, some of the typical ones that people might be familiar with, like nutrients that run off from agricultural areas, but also we specialize in very low detection limits of, of things that might become a emerging water problem, water quality problem. Uh, but are very hard to detect, and um, so we we really run the gamut there. Um, our 
having the quantity and quality of water necessary to support human and ecosystem needs. And hmm. that takes us down a path of really the science studies. Um, we, we collect the measurements, but then we analyze the measurements to really understand what's happening with water, where it's moving, um, what it's uh, essentially what it's moving through, and what kinds of uh, chemistry or contaminants or things like that it might be picking up along the way. Yeah. Uh, that basically takes us through just about every type of water science you can imagine, from, you mentioned the weather, from precipitation and snowfall and those sorts of things, to evapotranspiration and soil moisture, permafrost, wetlands, groundwater, aquifers, stormwater, lakes, reservoirs. Uh, we even get into some uh, estuary work um, um, in our nation's estuaries around the country. Yeah, so way beyond just um, the typical consumer's uh, tap in the kitchen or <laughs> uh, or the pump on the farmer's farm. A um, lot involved in uh, getting getting water to us. Um, well, you also talked about a 30-year outlook that was recently conducted by the National Academy of Sciences, and you were involved in that. And uh, why don't you share with our listening audience what you shared with us in D.C., what the major takeaways were from that study? Sure. The, we asked the so the National Academy, the National Academy of Sciences conducts studies by request, and um, we asked them to take a look at. Um, what they thought the nation's major water resource challenges would be, um, but we asked them to get out their crystal ball and look out 20 to 30 years. Uh, yep. We're going through um, changes in our organization, hiring new people, thinking about our programs for the future. We really wanted to get some guidance from the Academy on what should we be focusing on so that we're prepared for addressing water challenges of, in essentially the next generation. And the Academy put together really a blue ribbon panel of experts from around the country, um, even internationally. They brought in some folks from Canada. And uh, they got out the crystal ball and they looked into it. And um, maybe not too surprisingly, although we didn't know when we asked them, but they came back with, they think that the challenges that we're going to see in the next couple of decades are very much the same challenges that we're seeing now. Um, so they didn't come back and say, here's some completely new thing we've never seen before. Um, but they also said that because of things like population growth and migration of people into water-stressed areas, uh, the Southwest, for example, and other things, factors like climate change, that these problems that we're familiar with today are just going to become more acute and more pressing, uh, and the consequences will be more significant. Mm -hmm. So the good news for us is that we're already focusing on on most of these challenges, but we're going to need to step up our game, so to speak, over the next couple of decades to really be ready to address them when the when the consequences are perhaps more dire. Yes, and I, as I recall, um, you were saying what we need to do is gather gather data better, and then which kind of leads into my next question. Also, is um, 
dealing with the people aspect with so many people retiring. You called it the age of retirement and getting the right people in place to handle these challenges over the next uh, generation or two. What, what's happening there? Um, well, the, even today, when we think about water challenges we have today, we're data limited. And uh, we really have to start figuring out ways to collect more data, more water information for both surface water, groundwater, and water quality. Um, there's, uh, we operate about 8,200 year-round stream gauges across the country uh, where stream flow is monitored essentially 24-7, 365, but there's 30 million stream reaches in the country. Wow. Uh, up being something like two one-hundredths of one percent uh, that we're monitoring. We have um, about 20,000 groundwater wells across the country, but if you divide that by how many acres there are, it's pretty sparse sampling. So there's, there's much more that we don't know about um, the status and amount of water that we have than what we do know, and as things become more acute in the future, we're just really going to need to know more information. I sort of use the example of if you're driving into the desert and a sign says the last gas station or next gas station is, you know, 200 miles or something. If you've got a full tank of gas, you don't worry about it too much. But if you're near empty, you're looking at your, your gauge all the time trying to figure out uh, if you're going to make it or not. And that's, yeah. that's analogous to water information. The, the tighter it gets and the more uh, stressed water supplies get, the more we need to know about it in order to um, plan for uh, its use or infrastructure or any other decisions to make. As we yeah, because obviously uh, running out of water just is not an option, um, right, for for our for our civilization to survive, right? Yeah, that's that's generally a bad thing that we don't <laughs> see happening. Yeah, about, yeah. Uh, the age of retirement and. We, we're in an interesting situation where, um, on one hand, we're seeing unprecedented retirement and, and a loss of our workforce. Um, the federal budget was much bigger in the 80s, and there was a lot of hiring done then, and those people that are, were hired then are leaving now. Um, so there's a lot of new hiring to do. And at the same time, we're really going through a technological revolution in the we're all familiar with it, our smartphones and smart assistants and everything else is connected. And so it's really a different world moving in the next couple of decades from a science and technology perspective than it has been for the last two or three. So as we think about these water challenges and we think about hiring a new workforce to um, step in and step up and address these challenges, it's going to be a much more technologically driven landscape than it has been, and we have to factor that into how we uh, build our new workforce. Yeah, you probably need people who can kind of run the machines. I don't think machines are going to run everything, but there's more more machines running stuff. So get the right people to run the machines. Is that kind of a good analogy? Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. We're going to, you know, we're never going to have as many water observations as we would like, but our models are getting better and better, and we're able to use... Um, 
AI more than ever before. Uh, so we can do things like machine learning, where we can combine data models and powerful computers to sort of fill in some of the gaps where we might not be able to provide the observations we would like. Yeah, I think yeah. that's going to become the future of, it's really the synthesis and integration of everything that we have, not just one part of it, like just our stream gauges or just our groundwater wells. It's going to be the observations and the models and the machines. And it's going to take some pretty smart folks to come on board and help us get to there. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. And hopefully, are they readily available Do do in your recruitment? Um, are we ready for that? Do we have the right people coming up through the ranks? Yeah, we, they, they are. I mean, we're seeing... Um, we're seeing people come out of school now with with skills I never would have imagined when I came out of school, and um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's really um, they're they're used to doing things that we only dreamed of 20 years ago. So yeah, they're yeah. out there, and it's, it's a matter of getting finding them and uh, getting them on board, getting the right people in the right chair. Well, that's encouraging, and you know, you also spoke about another thing that was quite encouraging, that five of our nation's secretaries are beginning to work together more on water. You know, Secretary of Interior, Interior, uh, NOAA, the Corps of Engineers, uh, USDA, and EPA. Um, tell us a little bit about um, why they need to work together and, and how they will be in the future. Okay. Um, so... We have, across the federal sector, federal agencies, there's something like 24 agencies that have some sort of water mission, um, in addition to the role of states uh, to protect water resources. The federal agencies have different statutory directives to help safeguard the nation's water supplies in various ways. But of those 24, there's kind of a big five or six that are or the, the largest one, and um, they've been, the, the, these departments have been working together the last year or so to really sort out how to streamline and coordinate better uh, the various activities across the federal agencies uh, so that we can make some of the progress we need to make for the next couple of decades. It's it kind of tied back to being prepared for future water resources challenges. Yeah, well, that's just amazing. There's 24 federal agencies that work with water, and um, I, I, I don't think people realize that. But but water threads through everything. I mean, it's it's necessary for industry, it's for commerce, for you know, natural environment, and everything. So I guess it shouldn't be a, a surprise. Well, that's really encouraging that those five entities are working together. It's always struck me odd that. Um, we didn't really have even a Secretary of Water. <laughs> you know, it seems like um, it, that should be a, a devoted area considering how important it is to our daily lives. Now that well, that idea has come up from time to time over, you know, many decades, but uh, it, it, it is what it is still. And But we do a lot of things to try to work together better. We've had activities, for example, in the flooding arena, uh, USDS, NOAA, and the Army Corps of Engineers have been working really closely together for well, over a decade now, um, trying to integrate our activities and make sure that we're working together really closely, um, 
sharing information, uh, things like that. And there's other similar activities in different parts of the water arena. So um, yeah, there is a lot yeah. of coordination, but this this new level at the uh, assistant secretary level across these five departments is sort of the latest and uh, I guess a higher level of that coordination than we've seen yet. Yeah, and that sounds like a good thing. So that's encouraging too. Mm-hmm. So. So uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was um, something that we in the West are very interested in and it's come to people's attention more recently is the topic of atmospheric rivers. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit more more about how the recognition that they exist uh, came about and how important they are to the West's water supply and... Uh, any ways that we could corral that that sucker and uh, help it help it maybe replenish our groundwater supplies that get depleted during our droughts? Well, corralling it might be tough, but I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can tell I've you heard of people trying to. Well, so we've known for a long time. It's been probably the last twenty years or so that the term atmospheric rivers has been coined. Um, but what what it amounts to is that most water vapor transport in the atmosphere in the mid-latitude, so the United States basically, um, actually occurs in pretty thin ribbons uh, that are fairly well confined in space, and they can go hundreds or thousands of miles and transport that way. So we Hmm. sort of think of the atmosphere as being full of water vapor, and it is, but there are these conveyor belts or ribbons or rivers of moisture where um, really most of the water vapor is actually transported. Hmm. And that's that happens around the world. When those rivers of water vapor rise, when they run into a mountain range like the Sierra Nevada, for example, or they can rise just through other atmospheric motions, you get concentrated precipitation. We see that in the west. We see that in the southeast. We see it in several parts of the country. It comes down to, especially in the west, um, often the difference between basically a below-average water year and above-average water year may come down to just one storm, one event. And yeah. often, often those events are related to atmospheric rivers. So uh, if it happens to land in your area, you get a great year, and if it happens to go north or south, you don't. And the issue, since this is such an important source of, of uh, water resources, has been can we predict them? Uh, can we predict yeah. they're going to land and make landfall? And that, that's been getting better and better. Um, 20 years ago, what we knew these existed, but it was almost impossible to say where they might uh, strike land. The, we could see them from space and satellites and in our models, but when it came down to was all that rain or snow going to land in this basin or that basin, we really didn't know. But that prediction is getting better and better. Uh, we call that seasonal to subseasonal precipitation or S2S. And okay. um, there's been huge improvement. 
uh, still not perfect. Uh, still a lot of uncertainty associated with um, exactly where they will go. Um, but as we get better and better at that, there's more potential for trying to corral it, as you say, to, um, to, to plan for the fact that we think that plume of moisture is going to make landfall in this particular basin or this particular part of the mountain range. And so that area should expect a better than average water year. So that might help the people who are managing the level of water in the dams in the Sierras, for instance, of whether, you know, to adhere to their standards of letting water out to prepare for um, oncoming rain. If the rain's not coming, then they would keep it. Is that, is that, is that how that would practically uh, help us manage water to by knowing whether these things are going to hit or not? That's the idea. I mean, the, there's, we're starting to experiment with the idea of what we call forecast-informed reservoir operations, or biro. And as forecasts get better and you have more confidence in them, it becomes more feasible, um, less risky, you might say, to use those forecasts in your reservoir operations. If there's mm-hmm. no risk, and it basically boils down to if you think you're going to get a lot of rain in a, say, an atmospheric river, so you release a lot of water out of your reservoir, and then that rain doesn't come, it goes 100 miles north or south of you, you've got a problem. Yep. Um, if you don't release it, and it turns out the rain does come, you may be fine, you just didn't get the benefit of, of having that water released. So right. there's, there's right. a risk associated with it, and the predictions and forecasts certainly aren't perfect, but there's starting to be experimentation um, in a few places with that concept of can we use forecasts, can we rely on them enough to actually manage our water supply. It'll take some time to experiment with that and learn from it and see what it really takes to do that well. Well, it seems like that would be a really, really important area to um, for us to get better at because that's that's what it's all about here in the West, at least, is you know to manage the water for the benefit of everybody and the environment, um, making as much use of that rainfall event when it comes, whether it's to recharge groundwater or keep uh, river flows uh, going or getting getting water to the farms and to the people. So kudos on you for working on that. I hope we get better and better at it. And, um, well, so um, I guess my last question, and then I'd like to ask you if if you have anything you'd like to add. But, um, you know, I've always been curious. You know, there's droughts and then there's aridification, which pretty much means that, well, you tell us what does it mean. What's what's the difference between a drought and uh, aridification when when a drought really means the end of civilization? (laughs) Well, it, um, there is a difference. So we, we think of most of the western United States, for example, as being in an arid climate. You know, we have deserts and pretty low rainfall compared to the east. And if you look at that from space, you can even see it. That most of the eastern U.S. is green and most of the western U.S. is brown. And the only stuff that's green in the western U.S. is usually either mountains. Well, we had, we had us go. Sorry, we had to cut off on that, but we're up against our NBC national news. We got to go do that, but we do want you to come back, and we'll 
get that last tell of it the next time. And uh, Chris, you have a great week. And remember what we got to tell everybody.